take your Bibles this morning. Wow, okay. We are live. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7, please. John chapter 7. If you are a guest with us this morning, we welcome you uh, to our services today. And we are in the book of John, going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, rather, uh, through the Gospel of John uh, Sunday mornings. So if you've not been with us regularly, uh, that is why we are in John chapter 7 today. In our text verses this morning, really the next section that we'll be covering, we'll not get through all of this this morning, but verses 14 through 31. I'm going to read all of that uh, so that we have the whole section in our minds, um, but we'll just cover what we can here this morning. But let's go ahead and begin verse 14. You follow along as I read. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but, but he that seeketh the, his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil, who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a, a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Then said some of them of... Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I came. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true." whom ye know not, but I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these, which this man has, hath done? <clears throat> this morning, before we get into our verses here. Let me just remind you of what we talked about last week. The last message, we discussed the first 13 verses of John chapter 7, and we learned in that passage that, that people often have the wrong view of Jesus Christ. Not because uh, there's a lack of evidence. That's not the reason that people have a wrong view of Jesus Christ. The reason people view Christ wrong is because of their own heart. We talked about the, the, the Jews, the rulers of the Jews, 
who sought to kill him. The Bible said in verse 1 here of chapter 7, after these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And the phrase, he would not walk in Jewry, basically meant that he wasn't going to openly show himself. He wasn't going to openly work among the Jews anymore because they had opportunity, much opportunity, but they rejected him and they had their chance. And so he wasn't going to openly show himself to them anymore. And so the Bible says that he walked in, Gal- in, in Galilee. They had the wrong view of Jesus Christ, that he was Lord and Christ. They rejected him as the Messiah, even though they had so much opportunity. We talked about his own brothers, his half-brothers, who seemed to be wanting to gain off of his fame. Because they said, hey, all of these miracles that you do, if you really want a following, if if you really want... Uh, recognition, then let's go up to Jerusalem and work some magic there, do some miracles there, and then you're going to, if it stands the test of the leaders, you're going to have a, a multitude of people following you. And then verse 5 said that even his brothers didn't believe on him, that he was the Christ. Because he was their brother, it seemed that they may want to find some fame or gain off of his popularity because of their relation to him. They had the wrong view of Jesus Christ too. And then we talked about the people, the mixed multitude of the people, because some of those verses told us that some people said that he was a good man. Others said, no, he's a deceiver. And we talked about how he is a good man, certainly, but none of those people acknowledged Jesus Christ for who he actually was, that he is Lord, he is Messiah, he is God in the flesh, even though he was, yes, a good man. And so they still had a wrong view of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about how Jesus goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was required by all Jewish males, but he didn't go up with his brothers. Verse 10 said, but when his brethren were gone up, Then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So he didn't go up with his brothers. He went privately because he said, my time is not yet come. That's different than what he says here, or that mine hour is not yet come. And we talked about how it demonstrated for us or displayed his submission to the will and the word of his father, that he was truly the servant of God in that form as as Jesus Christ, the God-man. And then our text this morning gets us into the feast. And we said how those first 13 verses sort of set the stage for chapter 7 and chapter 8 and the events that begin to take place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so as we get into verse 14, the Bible says now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And so our text this morning records an important incident which took place during the midst of that feast. Jesus goes into the temple and refusing to be intimidated by those who wanted to kill him, Jesus boldly begins to teach all of those who are assembled there. And so I want to look at these verses and break them down this morning and continue on in this 
line of thinking that people have often a wrong view of Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll look at some things here, make some applications for us as well. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. We'll ask the Lord to bless His Word today. Father, we do pray that You'd give us Your grace as we uh, open up God's Word here, that it would be opened to us by Your Spirit. And Father, that You'd lead in what is said. And Father, then that You would also... Uh, lead in the response of those who would hear. And each one here today is, by, is here by divine appointment. There's something that you want to accomplish in every heart and life through your word. And Lord, I pray that there would be uh, that connection that is made um, with you today, Father, as we seek to exalt Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Consider verse 14 with me again here. And what we find in verse 14 is that Christ is in the temple teaching. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now, that's significant because two times prior to this moment here, the temple has been mentioned in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, we found that Jesus went into the temple to clean it out. And in that context, we found that Jesus cast out the money changers, those who were making merchandise off the house of God. He threw out the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the merchants, and all of those that, that, that were treating the house of God with really with disrespect. And he, he cleansed the temple, turned over the tables, cast out the money changers. The second time that we see the temple mentioned in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 5. In that context, Jesus had just healed the impotent man on the Sabbath day. And the Bible tells us that Jesus found that same man that he had healed in the temple. And so those are the two times that the temple is mentioned in, in the Gospel of John. But here in John chapter 7, for the very first time, we find Jesus teaching in the temple. And so get the picture here. Jesus goes up to the feast. He goes up not openly or with his brothers, but he kind of goes privately. And there's people who are talking about Jesus, about who he is. He's a good man. He No, he's a deceiver and so on. And then the next thing we find is that Jesus is now in the temple and he's teaching a, a multitude of people. We don't know what it was that he taught. The Holy Spirit has not recorded that for us. But judging by the response of the people, it must have been something very weighty. Because look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? So we don't know what it was that Jesus taught in the temple but the response of the people tells us that it must have been something pretty weighty. They marveled. And they said, how is it that he knows these things, having never learned? Maybe Jesus took the occasion to speak at length on the different aspects and relations of the feast itself. Remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was a memorial to the Jewish people in the wilderness. They dwelled in tents. And it was also a memorial to how God led them through the wilderness with a pillar of 
fire. And there were these ceremonies that went along with it. Uh, They had pouring of water, the priest did, and it symbolized God providing water from the rock in the wilderness. They had a candle lighting ceremony that, that symbolized God leading them with the pillar of fire and so on. All of these events... That, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles was a memorial to the time of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And maybe Jesus took the occasion to speak at length about those different aspects of the feast. Maybe he linked together the Old Testament scriptures that actually speak of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he brought out things that the hearers never suspected would be in them, and it caused them to marvel. But then... Ultimately, there would have been a searching application of the Word of God. Jesus may have taken these aspects from the Old Testament and linked it all together and teaching about the, the Feast of Tabernacles and really pointing to uh, Himself uh, in, in those things. But then at the end, no doubt, He would have made a, a searching application of the Word that would have gone straight to the heart and straight to the conscience of those who were listening. And all of that would have caused the reaction and the response that we see in verse 15, that they marveled. How does he know these things, having never learned? Well, we read in the next verses not only about the Jews marveling, but we also see Jesus' answer to that question. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh the glory of, uh, that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now notice Jesus' answer here. Okay, well, and I want to break all of these down, and we're going to make an application with this in just a minute. But verse 15 tells us that the people marveled. They marveled at what was being taught. They marveled at how it was being taught. It caused them to marvel at the teaching of Jesus Christ. Why did they marvel? Well, no doubt they marveled because of His great knowledge of the Scriptures. Jesus would not have been just speaking uh, uh, random things. He would have been using the Word of God as he, as he taught because He said, My doctrine is not mine, but it's the One who sent me. That's whose doctrine it is. No doubt they would have marveled that He taught with, with great majesty and eloquence and skill. He didn't teach with pretentiousness like the Pharisees would have. In fact, later on in this chapter... Those who tried to take Jesus and arrest him, they came back without him and they gave answer to their superiors. They said, why didn't you catch him? Why didn't you bring him? And their answer was, never a man spake like this man. That was said of Jesus on numerous occasions by people. And see, we have to understand the perspective they're coming from because the perspective these hearers are coming from is that they're used to listening to the scribes and Pharisees teach. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were learned and educated people. They used their education and their learning uh, as a superior thing and held it over the people. Like, we know more than you and we're going to teach you. And so, and so uh, they were learned and educated people. 
That's what the hearers were used to. And yet, they never heard anything like this before. They marveled at what Jesus taught and how he taught. And so they asked the question, how does he know these things having never learned? What does that mean? Well, they're referring to he's never gone to the rabbinical schools. He's never been trained in the, in the, in the, in the Jewish religion and like the Pharisees and the scribes. How does he know having never learned? Well, they're talking about the fact that Jesus didn't go to some Bible college of the rabbinical schools, etc., etc. But here's the problem with that question. That question exposed the state of their own heart. How does he know having never learned? It exposed the state of their own heart. Listen, it was not their conscience that was being pricked with what Jesus was teaching, their curiosity was being piqued. It was not the claims of God that occupied their heart in their mind with this question, but the schools of men. It wasn't the message itself that was gripping their heart, but the way it was delivered that engaged their attention. They marveled, how does he know this, having never learned? What would it matter if he had never been to the schools of men. If the truth of the message was gripping their heart, they knew it was from God, it wouldn't have mattered. But let me say this to you today. How that same spirit exists today. Education and degrees has become an altar that men worship at. But it's an altar to themselves for the exaltation of self, even to the denial of God. Now, let me say, there's nothing wrong with education. In fact, education can be good. It can be a useful tool to an extent. But when education, quote, education, takes you to the place of denying the truth of God, then it's devilish. We probably all know people, and maybe even have, I have some extended family that are like this. It's all about education. If you don't have an education, you're not going to go somewhere in life. If you don't have an education, you're not going to make any money. If you don't have an education, 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 it's the altar that men worship at, but it's an altar to themselves. One of the catchphrases that you hear so often today is this, follow the science. You know that phrase? You've got to follow the science. You've heard that a lot today. I think sometimes and most of the time it's science falsely so-called. Follow the science becomes real convenient when it fits your agenda, when it pushes the agenda and gets where you want to go. But when real science comes into the picture, and listen, here's an example. Here's an example for you. When real science tells you that there is real human life inside of that womb, but that science is denied and they just call it a clump of cells or they call it just a fetus so that we can get rid of it, that is wrong! Follow the science. Well, it's real convenient when it fits your agenda. But see, what I'm saying is that's kind of where it is with the world today. It's an unholy valuation of human learning. It's, it's something that has supplanted a humble dependence upon Creator God. And listen, here's the reason why. Mankind does not want to submit to God, and so ultimately they conclude that there is no God. 
This is what education does in so many cases. Education, education, education. It's we've educated ourselves to the point that we deny the truth of God. That is wrong. Listen. The Richard Dawkins of this world, if you don't know who he is, go look him up. But the Richard Dawkins of this world and others like him with all of their education and with all of their learning have actually become fools. Because the Bible says in Psalm 14, 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. With all of their learning, they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And these people that Jesus is teaching in the temple, they marveled, but it wasn't what was being said necessarily that was, was engaging them. It was how it was delivered. It was how does he know this stuff having never learned? It exposed the condition of their own heart. What they should have been doing was bowing at the feet of Jesus Christ, that He is God, very God in the flesh. He knows this because He's God. This is where we get to the next verse, because in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but His that sent me. What Jesus states here is that it was no human school where he had learned to teach that caused all men to marvel. This message that he's giving didn't originate in his own mind, as so often would have been the case with all of the teachers. They would have sat around saying, well, I think it means this, and I think it means that. Exalting themselves with their wisdom and so on. Jesus says it didn't originate in my own mind. My doctrine came from the one who sent me. The one that you claim to love and worship. And he's speaking as the servant of God here. Remember, he's both Lord and Christ. And then he says in verse 17, this is interesting. If any man will do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, if you really want to know God and you really want to do God's will with a pure heart, you're going to know whether or not what I'm saying is of God or not. There's going to be something to it that is screaming inside of you that this is true. It's not of God. It's not of men. If you really want to know God and you really have a pure heart, there's going to be something to this that is gripping you, that is telling you this is true. But you know, God is not going to grant light of His Word to those who are not truly anxious to walk in that light. People say all the time, oh, I want to know God's will. I'm facing this thing and I want to know God's will. Lord, what should I do? What is your will? Listen, God is not going to grant light to people from his word who are not truly anxious to walk in that light. But if my heart is pure, this is, Lord, I really want you to tell me what to do. God's not going to hide himself. But if I'm having trouble... but I'm using the spiritual lingo and the words. I'm praying about it. If 
but there's not really a heart to actually do what God reveals, God's not going to reveal His will. Wherever the heart is humble and right before God, He gives the capacity to apprehend His truth. And here's the, here's the here, listen, listen, this is it. The fundamental condition for obtaining spiritual knowledge is a genuine heart desire to simply carry out whatever it is that God is going to reveal. That's a pure heart. Sometimes that means admitting what we really are. And that's where we have the problem. We don't want to admit what we really are. Look at verse 18 then. Jesus says, He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Christ here appeals to the manner and purpose of his teaching. He, 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 he says this to show that he's not an imposter here. He says the one who speaks of himself, what that means is the message that he's giving, it originated with him rather than God. Basically, those speaking their own opinions. The one who speaks of himself, he says he seeks his own glory. That means he wants attention for himself. He wants honor. He wants accolade. He wants fame for himself. But on the other hand, the one who only seeks God's glory, he's the one who is true. That word true means the genuine servant of God. These others, they're not genuine servants of God. They're seeking their own. But the one who seeks the glory of God, he's the true servant of God. He's not one who's building his own empire on the name of God. How many do that today? On the name of God and on the name of religion and using Jesus, I'm actually trying to build my own name and my own reputation while looking spiritual. Jesus says, no, no, no. The one who seeks God's glory only, he's the true servant of God. And then he says, there's no unrighteousness in him. We need to interpret that in the context of verse 12. Go back to verse 12, because here's where the people had the wrong view of God. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. And so... Basically, what Jesus says is there's no unrighteousness in him, the one who seeks God's glory, meaning, look, look I'm no deceiver, I'm no imposter. I, wanna, I want God to be glorified. And so we broke those verses down to kind of get an idea of what they mean, but let's make the application to it here. And there's a twofold application here. Number one, verse 18, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness in him. Verse 18 really condemns the spirit of self-exaltation, which sadly is found in all of us to some degree, friend. The, the desire to exalt self. The Pharisees sought the praise of men and not really the praise of God. They, they promoted themselves. They promoted their learning. They, they, made, they took advantage of their position and power so that they could have the praise of men. They said they wanted the praise of God, but that was just a cover 
to really get what they were looking for. They claimed that they wanted the praise of God. And Jesus says, the one who speaks of himself, now he speaks of his own glory. How different the heart attitude for somebody like the Apostle Paul. Look what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just hold your place here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. How did the Apostle Paul see himself? He's the least of the apostles. He's not worthy to be an apostle. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says of himself here, for by, uh, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God. He said, I'm the least of all saints. It's by the grace of God that I'm anything at all. This was his heart attitude. And verse 18 shines the light. Listen, verse 18 shines the light on many in ministry today. They're actually seeking themselves, their own glory. You go to any kind of church, all kinds of churches out there. There's so many churches. And like, which church do I, should I be a part of? Which church should I join? Listen, here's one test for you and whether or not you should join a church or be a part of a church or not. First of all, does the preacher magnify himself or does he magnify the Lord? That's maybe one of the first things that you should be looking at. Does the preacher magnify himself or does he magnify the Lord? Secondly, does he seek his own glory or is he seeking the glory of God? Is he promoting himself or promoting his ministry or promoting what he's done and telling you about all of those things? Or is he seeking the glory of God? Does he speak about himself and what he's done? Or does he speak about Christ and what Christ has done? And what would he want? Can he say with the Apostle Paul, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord? Is the general trend of his ministry, behold me, behold the church, or is it behold the Lamb of God? I think verse 18, like I said, really condemns the spirit of self-exaltation, which could be found in all of us to some degree. Why are you here this morning? Why do you do what you do? Is it so Christ could be magnified? Or is it for personal gain or glory? But here's another application with this whole set. Jesus is teaching in the temple. They marveled. Jesus said, my doctrine's not my own. I, want, I came from God. I want His glory. Here's a second application to this whole point for us. Is that God's Word is what you and I need in church. God's Word is what you and I need in church. We don't need man's wisdom. We don't need man's opinions. We don't need jokes, and we don't need entertainment. What we need is God's Word to be given straight, that cuts right to the heart. Jesus would have been teaching in the temple, and He would have given an application that went straight to the conscience and straight to the heart of the people. 
a searching application. Listen, that's what we need in church. God's word cut straight and then an application for the heart. And here's the truth of the matter, friends. Sometimes, listen, sometimes people look for a place where they feel good. I'm considering churches. I want a place that makes me feel good. But really what we need is sometimes for God's word to step on our toes and make us really uncomfortable. That's what we need. Because then you know that this is from God. Then you know that, 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 that God is doing something. And why does it make me feel uncomfortable? Because God is working in my heart to try to correct something so that I can have a relationship with Him. That's what He wants. But He can't have a relationship with you. You cannot have a relationship with Him on your own terms. It's got to be God's terms. Where we say, I agree with you, God. Not I want to change the message and I want to soften it down so that I can feel comfortable in my sin or comfortable where I'm at and I, and, and I can come and I can stay just the way that I am. God wants to change you. He wants to make you different. Yes, He'll take you as you are, but He does not want you to stay the same. And people look for churches where, hey, come as you are, stay the same. God loves everyone. And he does. But when we say God loves everyone, and it's in the, in the context of we'll accept anything and everything, you have a wrong view of God. I don't say that to be mean. Because it's true. That's why I say it. Listen, even, even God's people can have a wrong view of God. We can have the, our view of God diminished to such a degree that we do not bow in His presence. We are not in awe of Him. And we go and live our life the way we want to live it. And we say, I'm okay with God. God's okay with me. And we push off the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God in our life because I want to stay the same. We've got a wrong view of God too. It's been diminished. He's not holy and high and lifted up anymore. We've brought him down to a God of our own making. And shame on us. What we need is not a place where we feel good. We need a place where God's word speaks to our heart and there's something about it that is screaming in our heart that this is true. Then we've got to decide, don't we? Now we're at a decision-making point. Am I going to submit to the truth of God and the will of God? Or am I going to reject that? Well, this is exactly what people were doing here. This is exactly what people were doing. They didn't want to submit to the will of God. But you know, I want you to notice a passage of Scripture. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And look in verse 2. The context of 2 Timothy is that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter 
to this preacher named Timothy, his own son in the faith. He's trying to encourage him. He's charging him. That's what verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God. So he's giving him a charge for his own ministry. And he says in verse 2, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So he's saying, take the word of God, preach it true, use it for reproof, use it for rebuke, use it for exhortation. There's two of those things that don't make you feel good. Reproof and rebuke. But the word of God also can be a balm for the soul and it can exhort us and so, and so on. And so Paul says, I'm charging you, be faithful to the word of God. This is what you need in church. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. But then he says this in verse three, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. He's saying the time is going to come when people don't want to hear the truth of God. They're actually going to look for, for teachers and preachers who will make them feel good. We're uncomfortable. And God's not going to work in their heart. We're in that day, I believe. The time has come. We have churches, mega churches, with thousands and thousands and thousands of people that would be amazing if thousands of people were hearing the truth of God straight and cut right to the heart and so on. It would be amazing. But friend, the reality is when the word of God really begins to be taught and preached, it's not popular. Jesus said, my doctrine's not mine. It was not a school that I learned in to teach that causes men to marvel. This is straight from God. And if you really want to know God and you really want to do his will, God is going to show you and reveal you that this is true. That's what happens when the word of God is taught and preached and the spirit of God is working in people's hearts. There's something about it that is ringing true. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in that position right now. God's trying to do something in your heart. The Spirit of God is convicting. There's something that's screaming that this is true, but you're at a decision point. Are you going to submit to God's truth or are you going to reject it because you want to live your own life? And then look at verse 19. Go back to our text in John 7. And look at verse 19. Jesus says here to them, he said, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? Here Jesus completely turns the table on them. They were saying that he was unlearned. They were saying that he hadn't been to school, the, the rabbinical schools. How does he know these things? But now he exposes that these people had the actual letter of the law, but they didn't even obey it themselves. They professed to be disciples of Moses and learned in the law, and yet there were, there was, they were standing there with murder in their hearts because, because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. They wanted to go about and kill him. So here are these who are learned, who have the letter of the law, but they weren't even obeying it themselves. Because they had murder in their heart. 
Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? He just declared that there was no unrighteousness in himself. And then he turns around and reveals the unrighteousness that was in them. For they stood ready to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so let me make this application with this this morning. Where there is no heart for truth, there's always a heart against the truth. And where there is enmity against the truth itself, there's going to be hatred for those who faithfully proclaim it. Let me say it again. When you don't have a heart for truth, there's going to be a heart against it. And when there's those who faithfully proclaim the truth, there's going to be enmity against those people. That's why when people leave a church that is preaching the truth, they usually have something negative to say about the preacher or about the people, not the word that's being preached because they can't find fault against that. But because of something going on in their own heart, they end up having something negative to say about the preacher or negative to say about the people. Like, oh, I don't want to go back to that church because those people were so unfriendly. I've heard that before. Yeah, we're just the most unfriendly bunch that there is. They use it to justify themselves because they can't find fault with the doctrine or with the truth that is being proclaimed. When there's no heart for the truth to begin with, there's always a heart against it. See, these people, they tried to find fault in Jesus. They tried to find fault in him to justify themselves because his life and his light and what he taught exposed them for who they were and they didn't want to hear that and receive it and the result of that was persecution listen the same thing has happened throughout history from 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 day one until today that same uh, uh, phenomenon where, where the truth is being preached results in persecution because those who are exposed don't want to hear it or see it. Listen, it's only by the grace of God and His restraining power that God's servants don't share the same experience as Stephen or the Apostle Paul in martyrdom and thousands of faithful saints who were faithful unto death. It's only by the grace of God that we don't experience that today, right now. But you know what? I don't think it's going to be very long until that divine restraint is lifted. The divine restraint which holds Satan on a leash is going to be removed Listen, read through the prophecies of Revelation and mark the awful sufferings that godly Jews will yet endure when that divine hand is removed. But listen, friend, saint of God, who's to say that what is currently happening in Afghanistan may not become general or universal and happen today to us? Christian people dying for their faith in other countries. Who's to say that that's not going to happen? Why? Well, because when there's no heart for truth, there's hatred against it. 
And the result is persecution. The question is, friend, will you stand for truth? Let me just wrap all of this up here. We're running out of time. And we'll cover these other verses maybe next week, Lord willing. Let me draw it to a close with a couple of questions, though. Number one, do you hunger after truth and seek to do the will of God in your life? Ask yourself the question, do you really hunger after truth and seek to do the will of God in your life? Or do you seek to justify yourself and you despise it when truth exposes what's actually in your heart? I think the evidence of what's really in your heart comes about by the reaction and the attitude towards it. That exposes what's really in our heart. The truth is, this truth is given. Well, I'm going to make up some excuse. I'm going to make up some reason why I don't like that, or I'm going to have something negative to say about the one who gives the truth. That is not a humble heart before God. The one who truly hungers after the Lord and to do His will is not going to justify himself or despise the truth when it exposes what he is. He's going to humble himself before the Lord. The second concluding statement would be this. Man wants to exalt himself and not submit to God. So, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Have you repented of your sin? Have you even been saved? Man wants to deify and exalt himself. Have you humbled yourself? Have you been saved? And then thirdly, another application might be this. Maybe you're at some point in your life where there's something that you want to know God's will in, but you can't find it. Well, remember that God will grant light on his will to those who are genuine and those who are truly wanting to walk in that light. The fundamental condition for obtaining that spiritual knowledge is to have a heart desire. Lord, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But maybe you haven't been able to find that. Are you really wanting to do whatever God's will is? Sometimes we convince ourselves that this, whatever it is, is the will of God when it's not really God's will. But we keep telling ourselves that this is the will of God. And so the question is, examine your heart. Do you really, really want to do whatever God reveals? So those are some applications that could be made here today for you and for me. However the Lord is speaking, whatever we need to do is, or what we really need to do is just examine our heart and submit to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you use your word today? Thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his example of servanthood. Lord, as we uncover in this passage of Scripture, the people asked the question and they marveled at Jesus, but it really wasn't because they marveled at who he was. They had a wrong view of Jesus Christ. 
still. And Jesus said, if you really want to know God and you really want to know His will, you'll know that what I'm saying to you is true. That I'm a genuine servant of the Lord. And then Jesus turned around and turned the tables on them and showed them that you have the Word of God, you have the letter of the law, but you don't even actually want to obey it. And sometimes that can be true for us as well. We have access to truth. We sit under good preaching. The Word of God is cut straight. We have all that we need, but it's not really in our heart to actually obey it. So Lord, I pray that you would help us and cause us to examine our own hearts here today, that you might have freedom to accomplish your will in us. In Jesus' name, amen.